Good morning, and thank you again for being with us this morning. This is an exciting day. Maybe you didn't know that yet, but it is. Not only do we have the privilege of being here and worshiping and being led in worship, thank you Josh and singers for leading us, but we also get to come back tonight and do it again for our Sunday school hour. We had a great first week last week, and I'd encourage you to take advantage of that if that's something that's interesting to you. Also, maybe this is the most exciting part, is today we turn the page, literally. So we're going, remember this is a big deal. When we started Ephesians last fall, it took us a while to get you know, through, this is my preaching Bible, so we got, and when we turned the page the first time, it was a pretty big mile marker, and now we get to do it again. And now you know what a nerd that I am, that I think this is exciting to turn the pages in our Bible. But I am so glad to be with you. I'm so glad that you're here, and I pray that this service is a blessing to you. As I was looking at the text this week, we're in Ephesians chapter 4. We've been working through this book since last September, and there's this theme or this this thing that I saw of transformation, and what Paul is going to do as we look at these verses today is going to show us about the transformation that ought to take place when the gospel of Jesus Christ penetrates our heart, shines light on our sin, we confess and come to Christ. There is a change that needs to happen. And as I was thinking about this, the concept of transformation is pretty prevalent in our culture right now, in some good ways and in some bad ways, right? I think on the negative side, we can see, especially over the last decade, how much transforming there has been when people look at their God-given design, the way that he has made them, and because of the sin in their hearts and the suppression of God's truth, they decide this isn't the way I should be and there's some kind of transformation that happens. In a positive sense, there are good transformations, there are developments of our character, there are things that we move from this area to this area, whether that's employment or location or whatever, there are good things. But the idea of transformation should not be foreign to us. So that as we come to our text today, I hope that it's clear that when Paul says things like, you ought not to walk as you once did, he is talking not about our effort in just cleaning up our act, but he is talking about the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform your heart and my heart. So I want you to open your Bibles if you have one. If you don't have one, they're available in the back on the pedestal in the lobby. Feel free to take one with you. But I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. We'll read through verse 24 today. That's, that's kind of a subsection of this part of the book. Uh, And we're going to break this up into two different parts. So this week we're looking at 17 through 19. Next Sunday we'll look at 19 through 24. So follow along please as I read from the word of God. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, 
which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we come first with thanksgiving in our hearts, Lord, that you would extend grace to any of us and save us. What an undeserved mercy. This is what we just sung. Why should I gain from Christ's reward? We can't give an answer. We have no reason why we should gain. But we thank you. Thank you for your mercy. And even today now, as we see the the darkness that you have rescued us from, and the sin that so easily overtakes, help us to see this in light of what you have done through Christ, and to offer up sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise to you, Father, for your good work. Tune all of our hearts to be in line with yours and with your sons and with your spirits, Father. Would you be pleased with our worship this morning? We give all these things to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, let's start right at the top. In verse 17, Paul begins by saying, This I say and testify in the Lord. This is Paul's way of bringing all of his apostolic authority to bear on what he is about to tell us. Okay, he's not just saying, this is Paul, your brother in Christ. He's not saying, this is Paul, the guy who visited you several years ago. He is saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, as we've previously read in the book, and this I am saying to you in the Lord, with the authority of the Holy Spirit. Paul is writing under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, He's been commissioned by Jesus Christ himself to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and to everybody. And so when Paul says, what I'm about to tell you is coming from God, he means to add weight and significance. There are places in Paul's writing where he says, this isn't a command, I'm just telling you, this is kind of what I think. 1 Corinthians 7, for example, Paul's talking about marriage singleness, relationships and stuff. He says, this isn't isn't command. I'm just telling you, if I had my way, this is how it would be. This is not one of those cases. Ephesians 4, 17, Paul is saying, from the mouth of God, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I come to you and say, this is what you ought to do. This is not a negotiation. This is a command of God. And we're going to talk I know I keep talking about Sunday school, but I'm excited about it. Tonight, we're talking about the authority of the Word of God and how when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And so when Paul comes and says, this is what you ought to do, and I am saying this in the Lord, we need to pay attention. We need to realize the significance of what he's talking to. And what is Paul testifying? What is he telling them? Look at verse 17 with me. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now we've already seen several times in the book of Ephesians the significance in Paul's understanding of walking. Right? You remember back in the beginning of chapter 2 
the very opening of that chapter, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world. A little bit later in chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul says that those who have received the free gift of salvation, who have been saved by the grace of God, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we would walk in them. Or more recently in chapter 4, at the top of the chapter, Paul says, I urge you, I encourage you to walk worthy of your calling. In every case, including what we see here in verse 17, the walking has not just to do with the action, but with the obedience, with the posture of our heart that is motivating us towards action. Walking is of great significance to the Apostle Paul. Before Christ... Paul is drawing attention to the fact that we walked, we obeyed the world. We followed sinful desires. But in contrast to the world's way of living, to the world's way of walking, God has prepared for us good works. He has given us a calling that we are to walk worthy of. I think a good summary, a thesis statement, if you will, of these verses that we're looking at would be this. The life that has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ must look different than the life that has not experienced the grace of God. The life that has been changed by the power of God through the gospel must look differently than a life that has not been transformed by the gospel. This is Paul's language in verse 17 when he says that we must not walk. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. We must no longer walk in the ways we once did. This is not a recommendation. Paul's not saying, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Caribou after church and I want you to just, just think about this. And if you come up in your own mind and you say, okay, I, I think I can do that, then go for it. No. No, Paul says, you must not walk as you formerly did. This is why I think he includes this qualification at the beginning of verse 17. When he says, I'm telling you this in the Lord. This is God speaking to you to encourage you, Christian. Leave behind the old ways of living and the things that once identified you. Now I hope that when we hear this and when we read this section and we hear about these These awful terms that Paul uses of darkening and hardening and futility. There's another section of scripture that talks about this. And I want you to follow along or you can just listen as I read. But when we hear this language, we should think of a parallel passage in Romans chapter 1. You can turn there or you can listen as I read. These, I think, are some of the most chilling words in all the Bible. But listen as I read. This is what Paul said to the church in Rome. Chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth or push down the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, 
so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became, now here's the language from Ephesians 4, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. We need to understand, brothers and sisters, that when Paul says what he says, when he exhorts us to leave behind the things that once identified us, he is not telling us that simply so that we can stay out of trouble or so that you can have a little bit easier time as you go through your life. He is exhorting us to this in the Lord because Paul knows that the holy and perfect wrath of God is being poured out on everyone who walks that way. This is not a light thing. Paul is deadly serious when he is speaking in Ephesians 4. And I had to ask myself and therefore I ask you right now, do you consider it a light thing? to toy with the parts of your old nature? Is it a small thing to dabble in the life that you once lived? Or do you recognize the teaching of the word of God that says everyone who holds on to that, who is identified by the life we once lived, will induce the wrath of God? Now, Paul is in agreement with the rest of Scripture. This is not isolated. He agrees with the Apostle John. John says this in 1 John chapter 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. Creating a distinction between the life that is transformed by the gospel and the life that has not yet received the grace of God. Paul would say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He asks these rhetorical questions. Questions where the answer is so obvious he doesn't even need to say it. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with false gods? Or what portion does a believer share with the unbeliever? The Bible offers us a clear and sharp distinction between the ways of the world and the ways of Christ. You cannot claim to love God and serve Him and yet hold on to the things that you find so much pleasure in because they're so satisfying for a moment. They are incompatible. And I am not up here telling you this as someone who has this all together. You need to know that. I'm not the model Christian here. Christ is. I don't have this all together. But we have an example in Christ to leave behind and to press on. Paul now makes these hard-hitting string of indictments against the Gentile word, if you're you're following in, in 17, 18, and 19 here. 
He begins by saying that they live their lives on the basis of meaningless views and perspectives. He uses the phrase futility of their minds to articulate this. And the word mind here, it's more than just a cognitive ability to think. It has to do with not only thinking, but decision-making and making moral judgments. And Paul is saying the mind that has been darkened is futile. There's no purpose. For Paul, life is vain, futile, and without purpose if it is not ordered around God, His revealed will in the Scriptures, and His purposes. He's drawing our attention to these things. Do you remember the book of Ecclesiastes? Solomon is writing. God had blessed Solomon with wisdom, riches, power, peace in his kingdom, and yet Solomon's heart was drawn towards the things that were outside of what God had prescribed from him. And he writes in Ecclesiastes and talks about the meaninglessness of life apart from God. You can have everything the world offers, comfort, security, whatever, fill in the blank, good job, good family, and without Christ, without the hope of the gospel, Paul is saying that is futile, that is meaningless. Now maybe you're hearing this, I know this is the case for many here, you do not remember a time when you did not walk with the Lord. You don't have explicit examples in your mind of what life looked like before Christ. And I would say, praise God. Praise God for his grace that saved you before you got into a life where we deal with the negative consequences of our sin. We don't need to bemoan the fact that you don't have a sordid past. I've never met anyone who has had a past of just blatant sin and lawlessness and has come to Christ and they say, man, I wish everyone could go back and experience this wickedness and this this sin and these consequences. It's great. No one says that. So don't read this text and say, oh man, I don't have a good testimony. I don't even know what life was like before Christ. Praise God. You don't need to go back. You don't need to sin. What you need to do is recognize the grace of God that is able to save you and keep you. So don't read this and say, I don't don't associate with this. You do. Because what Paul is telling us here is not only what some of us were, but what all of us could be. It's not just what some of us were. It is what every one of us in this room is capable of apart from the work of Jesus Christ. Let this be a warning. I don't want us as a church or as individuals to slip into what I call functional atheism where you confess Christ with your mouth and yet the life that we live has no correlation. Like people look at your life and they say, oh, you're a Christian? I had no idea. Now we need to be careful because it's not just about the external things. 
Christ was so clear in the Gospels that it's the heart. It's the inside of us that needs to be changed by the power of God. And then the life follows after. So I am not calling you today to just paste on a smile, pretend like everything's fine, and say, yeah, look, my life is so much different than it was before, when really secretly you're harboring all of this sin and these desires and these lusts and these passions. A transformation that God brings is a total and complete transformation. And that's what Paul is drawing our attention to and reminding us of. Look with me again at verses 18 and 19. Paul says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul continues now his description of what life is like apart from Christ. And I want to draw attention to the first phrase that he uses in verse 18. This phrase, they are darkened in their understanding. We need to recognize exactly what it is that we're up against here when Paul uses this kind of language. The fact that people are darkened, hardened, is not coincidental. It's not just that people find themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time and, whoop, I just fell into the sin. I don't know what's going on. That isn't the case at all. There is intentionality to this, and it's a frightening intentionality. I want to tell you something that Paul said in 2 Corinthians. He's talking about this darkening and how this hardening happens. This is what he says, 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, who is that? Satan. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So how does this happen? There is no accidental blindness in the world, spiritually speaking. There is no passive darkening. The God of this age, Satan, is working overtime to blind people, darken their understanding, confuse you. He hates you, and he hates Christ, and will do anything that he can to cause you to doubt, question, or just blatantly disbelieve. When Paul says in Ephesians 4 that the darkening is because of ignorance, even that ignorance is due to the hardness of heart. And when people harden their heart to the gospel, when they refuse to consider that they are sinful at the core and that there is a God that they're held accountable to for their sin, when they refuse to accept that, the ability to comprehend spiritual things grows less and less and less. Our fleshly desires, our tendencies towards sin are so much more dangerous than I think we realize. There is no innocent sin. There is no inconsequential sin. It is a part of the life we lived before Christ. Paul tells us, in no uncertain terms, that we are no longer to walk in the ways that we once did because Paul knows that there are only two ways of walking. We talked about this when we were in the Psalms. We talked about this earlier in Ephesians. 
The path of the righteous, the path of the wicked. There's no middle road that we can kind of keep one foot in each spot and say, okay, I'm going to try to walk both paths at the same time. They are not parallel paths. And friends, we cannot walk both paths at the same time, which is why Paul is saying, you need to recognize what you came from and stay away from it. Put it to death. We're going to talk more about how to do that next Sunday when we come back. There are no categories in the Bible for Christians, people who have been changed by the grace of God, to hold on indefinitely to their sinful behavior. And I say the word indefinitely because we need to recognize the process of sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus, is a lifelong process. There is no immediate expectation of perfection in the life of the Christian. If there was, we're all done. Growth that we've been talking about for the past several weeks, maturity, growing into a likeness of Jesus takes time. And Paul is not saying here, if you're a Christian and you ever sin, you're out. What he is saying is recognize. Recognize the things that used to identify you and leave them behind. They are weighing you down. You must not walk as you used to. There must be a change. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has received free gift of salvation, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. This theme of transformation is all over the Bible. Now if you hear this, and you don't yet know Christ. You haven't come to the place yet where you've surrendered your life to Christ. My call to you from this text is to lay aside the futile pursuit of worldliness. You know, and everyone who once walked in those ways knows that it is a futile pursuit in every sense of that word. Meaningless and bottomless. You can never be satisfied with what the world offers. you can chase and chase and chase and never be satisfied. This is why. This is why the Bible uses language of satisfaction in God alone. Because God knows that there is no other place that we can go to be satisfied. And he knows that the pursuit of sinful pleasure is futile or meaningless. And if you are in Christ, My encouragement for you, just like it'll be when we come to the table, is to examine your life. Do you have areas that you are still holding on to that you're unwilling to let go of? Hand them over to Christ. He can take them. And you can start fresh right now. What a promise. Now in verse 19, Paul says that the Gentiles, which is common New Testament language for unbelievers, they have become callous. This is an interesting word for Paul to use. It doesn't show up anywhere else in the New Testament. And it means literally to be past feeling. 
Most of us have probably done something long enough or hard enough where we developed calluses. We just had to dig in an electrical trench at our house. And if you don't wear gloves, you get callous. The skin hardens and you can't feel anything. That's the picture that Paul is creating. To have one's heart be so hardened, so callous, so tainted by sin that there's no longer any recognition of right or wrong or, or what direction we should even go. So we just pursue whatever's in front of you. To have your heart that hardened is what Paul calls being callous. And this state of callousness, this unfeeling that he's describing to us, in this state, Paul says that these unbelievers give themselves up to sensuality. The word is asogia. It means unbridled lust, out of control passion. Because when there's no standard, when there's no meaning, what do you do? You do whatever you want <laughs> with no restraint. So the life lived apart from Jesus Christ, dangerous in every way, but especially dangerous in the sense that there is no limit. There is no restraint outside of the hand of God restraining the wickedness that is in the world. Paul says this callousness produces in hearts basically an I don't care attitude. Whatever. There's no standard, there's no God, I'll do whatever I want. And the pursuit of selfish pleasure is never ending. This is what we're being warned against. I think we also need to note that Paul says they have given themselves up to this kind of behavior. This is not some condition that was thrust upon them involuntarily, right? They became this way on their own volition, their own desires. No one can stand before God and say, well, I, didn't, I didn't know what was going on and that was wrong. I just did what I wanted to do. Who are you to judge what I'm doing? No one can stand before God and say that because everyone knows. That's what Romans 1 just said. Everyone knows that there is a standard. Everyone knows that there is a God. And for God to uphold his own standard is right. It's what we call his righteousness. They have given themselves over. And why is this? Why do people do this? Because that's what the flesh does. Apart from Christ, all we can do is pursue selfishness. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Paul says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Why do people pursue selfish passions apart from Christ? That's all they can do. The most philanthropic, generous person apart from Christ is acting out of a selfish motivation. That's hard to believe sometimes, isn't it? But it's true. It's true. We do not sin and pursue wickedness because God is forcing us to do that. We do that because in our flesh, 
as a result of the fall. That's what we want to do. And it takes an act of God's grace to save us from that. And I just think as we come to the end of this, what an amazing reminder of the power of the grace of God to take every one of us who have claimed the name of Jesus, who know Christ, God has taken you. And in spite of all of your tendency towards sin and your desire for selfishness, his grace overcomes that selfishness. And he says, you are mine. And in a demonstration of that sovereign, effectual, powerful grace, God saves you. Not because of yourself, but in in spite of yourself. And because of his great mercy towards us. Grace overcomes the hardness of our hearts. Grace gives us new desires. What an amazing thought. Okay, earlier I read from 2 Corinthians 4 about the blinding that Satan brings upon the unbelievers. And now as we come to a close, I want to return there with you and read the rest of that passage. Next week we're going to see the good news. We're going to see the putting on of the righteousness and the goodness of God. But for this week, I don't want to leave us hanging here without hope and without some good news. So listen as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll start in verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Some of the best verses in all of the Bible. You cannot overcome the darkness in your own heart apart from Christ. Did you know that? That's the testimony of Scripture. You and I do not possess the the tools or the skills necessary to overcome our sinful desires and turn to Christ on our own. We need the grace of God. We need God. And Paul here reaches back to the creation account. And he says, remember God, the same God who spoke everything into existence, who said, let there be light, and it happened? That same creative power can be at work in your heart to shed light on the darkness, to reveal to you what Paul calls the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. That's good news. (laughs) That is good news for us this morning because it offers hope. It does not just say, you're sinful, you're headed for judgment, I'm sorry. The gospel says, you're sinful, you're headed for judgment, but Christ has paid for that judgment. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what needs to be illuminated in our hearts so that we see and understand. I mean, what do you pray for when you pray for those that you know who don't know Christ yet? What are you praying? All of us have those people in our life. Are you praying that they would somehow come to an intellectual understanding of the tenets of Christianity? Are you praying that they would finally just be able to comprehend 
If they could just read the Bible and understand the arguments. No. We should be praying 2 Corinthians 4, 6. That God would open their understanding, shine the light on their heart, and bring them to an understanding of their absolute sinfulness and need of a Savior. This is what we should be praying. That God would overcome the hardness. Everything that Paul talked about here. Hardness. Darkness. Callousness. God can do it. Not only can he do it, but he wants to do it. And he wants to restore us to himself. This is the only way, brothers and sisters, that people will leave the path of wickedness and walk the path that God has made for them. If he intervenes, Paul says in Ephesians 4, we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And this, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the only way that we can stop walking that way and start walking this way. We're going to look more at this next Sunday when we come to the next verses, but I invite you now to pray with me as we come to the table. Father, thank you for the reminder of your word. Thank you, Lord, that you don't only give us the bad news, but we have to understand the dire state that we're in before the grace that you extend to us will be sweet. So help us, Father, to understand the absolute helplessness that we are in without Christ. And would every one of us turn to you for mercy. Your word promises that you will not turn away anyone who comes to you for salvation. So, Father, please, by your Spirit, now work in this room and draw those to you who are apart from you. And would you be pleased, as your word says, to bring many sons to glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.